Hi, welcome to Add Passion and Stir. The easiest way to think about this is that flour now lives forever. It doesn't have a shelf life. Fresh flour, the flour that our ancestors ate, our great-grandparents ate, was perishable. I'm Billy Shore, here in Boston for our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. We've got a special guest today. We usually have two guests on this show, uh, one from the culinary community and one from policy or social justice or activism. But we've got one guest who wears both hats in a way. He's John Alinto. Welcome, John. You're the co-founder of Be Good and now One Mighty Mill. Thanks a lot, Billy. I'm excited to be here. And uh, this sounds like a lot of pressure to, to uh, bring it, bring come strong for two people. We're uh, really interested in the kind of the path that you took, starting, I guess, with Be Good. We've talked about it a little bit, you and I, when we when we first met, but I think there's 75 Be Good uh, restaurants around. Um, is it mostly New England, or how far do you go? No, uh, Be Good grew from from Boston, very close to where we're sitting right now, uh, about 16 years ago. Um, we opened the first one, and now there's 75. We go as far north as Toronto uh, and as far south as uh, South Carolina. And what was the idea behind it? Yeah, so my uh, my best friend and I, we grew up together. We always start, wanted to start a business. Uh, we got out of college, and we were doing jobs and management consulting and decided we were just going to start coming up with ideas. And really, the only idea we could come up with that made any sense uh, that we felt like we could actually go out and do was this uh, the fact that we had grown up eating, like most kids in our generation, we, were, we grew up eating McDonald's and Burger King and in, in mostly industrial fast food. And, and when we were 25 years old, uh, we saw this need for uh, fresh food that was made fast and that was better for you. It was pretty simple. The way we thought about the idea was that we were going to make fast food real. We didn't know really what that meant other than we were going to take a traditional fast food menu and make it from scratch and, and put some love into it. Um, and so... Uh, we started, you know, a long time ago, and we 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 hit our stride, and we opened a whole bunch of them. And customers uh, responded right away, and did they understand um, what you just described, or did they just say, "Oh, this is this is just great food. That's why I'm going there," or both? No, um, we didn't really have any clue what we were doing. Uh, so the the first the first uh, when we opened the, the restaurant was definitely uh, we were shocked that people came back, um, but we we worked really hard, and we were really focused on uh, on improving every day. Uh, and we we lived in the restaurant, and so we built great relationships with our customers. Uh, we became really part of the community, um, and I think from the menu standpoint, the the interesting thing that happened was, uh, you know, we we had we had opened it a long time ago before this whole like layer of fast casual existed. So there there really wasn't. Um, I mean, Panera existed, but it wasn't. It definitely wasn't in Boston. Um, you know, there was no Chipotle, there was no Sweetgreen, there was no uh, Dig In, uh, and so we were we were kind of ahead, and we saw a really good opportunity now. Um, when we started, we identified or we defined real, making fast food real as uh, things like grinding our own beef. So bringing uh, whole chuck rolls uh, into the kitchen, grinding it every day, cutting fries from scratch from whole potatoes, uh, making our own salad dressings and veggie burgers homemade. Uh, but really, when the when the business really started to improve and, and change, and I think took uh, a little bit of a leadership uh, position, was uh, when we started to challenge our own definition of real. And so we started to really wonder if real meant uh, if, if it was a real burger if uh, we were bringing in chuck rolls uh, that were uh, that may have been raised on a factory or uh, shot up with antibiotics or hormones or or even more we just didn't know anything about it um, and when we started asking that question we really started to um, add a different dimension of real and i think that that uh, made us even a better brand and a better business and the food got better and better as a result as a result <laughs> the food tasted better we became uh we be we got more experience we, we started to run better restaurants um you know we we it took us about two years till we opened our second restaurant in harvard square um and then after two 
uh, we started to figure things out a bit. And, uh, and and then we started to grow a little bit faster. Because the difference between one and two and two and seventy five is is pretty big, right? Yeah, it's pretty big. You know, you know. I think the big thing that we learned is that the difference between one and two, uh, when you have uh, a, a pretty solid team, especially uh, a few co founders working, is that it's you can manage it. Um, it's when you go from two to three and or two yep. to four. Uh, that's when you you really you have to develop systems, and uh, that was a that was a big learning curve for us. So you know we we definitely we learned a lot uh, going from two to three more so than we did going from one to two. And it's it, it's a little unusual because it's not always the same people that can do that that can start something and scale it. We've got a, a board member, a really wise man who's been involved in the restaurant industry for a long time. His name is Wally Doolin. And uh, he told me once, he said, I could never build a good restaurant, but I could build a hundred of them. So he's a scaler. He could, he could come in to be good and say, Oh, I, I know how to make this happen in, you know, a couple hundred places, but he couldn't, he, you know, he, he wouldn't have been the guy to start it, but you you were able to do both. I think so. I think, I think looking back on it, I, I think I'm better at the start and I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, or and I don't think uh, my business partner is either. We're not professionally trained, uh, managers. Right. Like we kind of we started when we were young and we kind of figured it out. But there's there's no doubt it's what you just referred to. There's expertise. So people that have run large organizations before, um, they they bring a different discipline, uh, which makes them, I think, better suited to to uh, to to lead uh, versus when you're starting out and you really have to uh, lean on uh, instinct and guts uh, and in some ways, um, you know, that the idea of entrepreneur entrepreneurial uh, risk taking. So from the time you started to the time you sold Be Good, how many years was that? Uh, that was t- 13 years. Oh, 13 years. Yeah. Okay. So it was a long time. Um, and that kind of, you know, really positioned you to do what you're doing today, which is really, frankly, what I'm most interested in. You've got this company called One Mighty Mill, and you describe it as kind of, I guess, filling the, the hole in the farm-to-table system in terms of the way we think about wheat and make wheat that we can eat. Um First of all, the name, One Mighty Mill. I love it. <laughs> I want to know where it came from. Who, who came up with it? So I have to give credit to uh, uh, one of the co-founders of One Mighty Mill. It's a guy named Chris Pape. Um, and he really helped us uh, think about what, you know, what the brand needed to stand for. And the idea of, uh, of a mill, first of all, is, uh, is, is, is critical to the brand. Uh, but the power that we, we think we have with one mill, and we have more than one mill now, but that idea of creating change, especially in a, uh, in a food system that, that is, has been totally industrialized, that idea of, of impact and change starts with one, uh, one symbolic effort. And we think that dropping and building a mill, a stone mill uh, in downtown Lynn, uh, hopefully sent a message. And hopefully we've inspired other people to, to think differently about flour, wheat, milling, and the idea of bringing it back to local food systems. So let's let's talk about what that really means. I read on your website that in the year 1900, there were 25,000 grain mills in the United States. And in the year 2000, now we're down to 200. Uh, and I think you've also got on your website that, you know, from 8,000 BC until, you know, a hundred years or so ago, um, we made bread and, uh, and used wheat a certain way and that, that's all changed. So talk a little bit about the history of this. I mean, that's, this is to me, what's so profound about what you're doing, this kind of like reconnection and reestablishing this tie to the way things were done before it was processed food, before it was industrialized. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk about. It. I think first I'd like to frame it on where we we came out of, right? Yeah. Because I think it does set the stage of of how little I knew, uh, in in how interesting and surprising that is. If you if you're trying to build a farm to table fast casual business and you don't know anything about wheat or flour or really bread, 
then that alone indicates that there's a real problem. Um, especially if, you know, if, if, a, if somebody that's actually running a brand that wants to tell that story doesn't know, imagine what happens if you're a consumer um, totally detached from, from agriculture, food systems, uh, um, menu development. And so... And a lot of the farm-to-table conversation had left out wheat. Absolutely, right? totally. So we, you know, at Be Good, when as we started to understand uh, real, uh, as it related to real relationships with producers and and, and growers, uh, you know, our food tasted better when we did that. We we had a more really we had a more invested in, uh, team members because they 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 had re- they they believed that we stood for something that was bigger and better. Uh, and then also you just see more loyal customers because your food is fresher, it tastes better, but also similar to that, like you have a deeper purpose. Um, and so we would, we would strategically create supply chains regionally. So as we moved across the country, uh, New England's a great example because that was where, um, you know, while I was at Be Good, that was kind of the core market. Uh, you know, our beef came from Pineland Farms. It's a co-op up in Maine. Our ice cream came from Toscanini's, which is a very small ice cream parlor yeah. in Central Square. Um, our Fa- Fabulous ice cream, by the way. Yeah, really good. And, and great people too. They're the best. Um, our potatoes are grown by Frank Slazowski up in Hatfield, Mass. Right, so we had strategically gone through every piece of our menu so that we could create that relationship, but also that we could share it with customers and team members. And we always told the story of a baker, but we never stopped to think that a bakery could be connected to a farm. Um, it just wasn't even part of our consciousness. Uh, and and so, you know, after being at Be Good for a long time and realizing that I had never stopped to ask that question. Um, you know, there were some people, Dan Barber specifically, Michael Pollan, some of the, the, the leading thinkers, they were, they were actively writing about, um, about grains and wheat uh, and what had gone wrong with industrialization. And, and so as I was trying to think about uh, what we wanted to do next, um, it really it centered around this idea, why didn't I know anything? Um, and, and really, uh, those two data points you said, which is year 1900, 25,000 grain mills go to uh, year 2000 is 201. And so, so in 1900, virtually every community would have had a grain mill, right? Yeah, that would that, be something that you were yeah. conscious of as you were walking by or go, growing up. Yeah. And I think, I think that was the, that was the big, there's those two data points, that one. And then the fact that in the year 1900, the state of Maine had 30,000 acres of wheat being grown for human consumption and by the year 2000 it was zero. And so you, if you're, if you're me, uh, and you, you hear that and you're already struggling with this idea of why don't I know anything? Well, it's clear that it's been taken from us, right? Like it's, it's been taken from local food systems. You know, everybody wants healthy local food systems. Everybody understands that. That's why we go out of our way to support local. But the true cornerstone of bringing that back is going to center around mills because wheat and flour have infiltrated nearly everything we eat. And I think, you know, that especially as we talk about um, demographics and how, uh, in how, Income and neighborhood typically defines kind of uh, healthy food or your access to healthy food. You know, you think about kids just in public schools and how much flour they eat. Right. For breakfast, it's cereal, right? It's bagels, it's donuts, lunch, it's pizza, hamburgers. Uh, dessert for any meal is going to be made with flour. And so it's like this invisible thing that's totally uh, everywhere in our system, but nobody asks questions about it. And then on the flip side, you just see people who um, who have kind of interpreted that as uh in and have come away with demonizing it right so i think a lot of people just write off gluten and wheat as being really bad instead of thinking about the process that has taken you know something that is so nutrient dense and something that has nourished civilization from the beginning and made it into something that our body really can't process so how did you take this um kind of like insight into this massive historical shift uh and decide where to start (laughs) 
So I think, um, so the first, it was in steps, right? And so, um, and this is like, we have a team, right? So this is definitely not me, but the, the, the steps that we took, number one was there's clearly a problem. And, and that problem, especially in food, is like, if there's no transparency, right, you know that it's not good for us. And then number two, you know that there's an opportunity to build a brand that has real impact and something that you can make, be proud of. And so, um, you know, you've seen craft and farm to take go in every category. So as from the business side, it's, it's a no-brainer because you look at things like craft beer, you look, like, you look at coffee, you look at chocolate. All these commodity ingredients have been uh, commercialized and in, in, in really done in a way that uh, harkens back to the past and brings craft back into that mm-hmm. ingredient. You know, wheat is so much more important than any of those other categories because of the health implications. Um, so really the first step was, can we find local wheat? Like those numbers are intimidating when you think about zero acres in Maine, right? Right. And Maine is the agricultural hub. I mean, Arista County, in terms of uh, acreage of agriculture, Maine is, in New England, it, it should be the, the breadbasket. Um, and so step one was trying to figure out if we could find, if we could build a supply chain and we got really lucky and we, um, at a conference met Matt and Sarah Williams, who Matt Williams, uh, is the first farmer in Maine to bring, to grow organic wheat again. Um, and was, was he about to grow it anyhow or did you talk him into No, no, he was already growing. So he, yeah, he, he had been growing. Um, and, and he has all, I mean, he, he's, he's the visionary. You know, like he deserves the credit. He was he was growing. He was growing organic. He was trying to build a network of other farmers. He was a former agronomist at the Maine, uh, University of Maine, and so his, you know, he's committed to bringing wheat back to Maine. And when you're talking about the health implications, um, I'm kind of accepting it on face value. But what are they? Like, why is your wheat so much healthier than the wheat we'd buy in the supermarket? The easiest way to think about this is that flour now lives forever. It doesn't have a shelf life. Fresh flour, the flour that our ancestors ate, our great-grandparents ate, was perishable, right? And so the simplest way to understand it is a roller mill that produces all the flour in our country takes the living piece out of the out of the wheat, the germ, and then processes it in a way and puts it back together so that it, it doesn't go bad, right? And we all know fresh, real food is the best thing we can eat. Um, we shouldn't eat processed food that uh, doesn't go bad ever. Um, and so that's the easiest way. And if, it, and if it's processed, does that mean it's going to be bad for what your cholesterol your so really what, what happens is it, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out why it's bad yeah, why so, yours is good so what happens is it's, it becomes mostly empty starch right and okay. so your body processes it like sugar and so especially especially refined white flour so there's nothing to slow the absorption when it hits your body so there's not there's not fiber fiber to slow it down and there's really not uh there's no nutrient density uh, and so what happens is your body eat, you eat it uh turns into sugar and that's bad. So the manufacturers have basically taken the good stuff out just because it'd be more economical. Yeah, well, because yeah, because it, it's hard to feed a country and ship it all over the place, right? right. And it's hard to create, uh, you know, efficiencies. Um, it's way easier if it's like a widget that you can ship anywhere, right? And, it, and it'll and last it, forever. And it'll last forever. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so you're making now. You're making bagels. You're making pretzels. You're making tortillas but when we started this conversation you were saying wheat's in everything i mean you could be making your product could be in everything eventually right yeah that's the dream that's the vision yeah i mean if you go to a grocery store you know even if you don't know i mean i think that's the 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 most interesting piece i think most people don't really know what's what flour is in like i wonder if people think about when we sell a pretzel snack do people even think there's flour in pretzels yeah um and i never uh, you know I, i mean as you know we've talked about like i like to bake bread so i I bake a lot, and it never crossed my mind that some flour looks neutral. It looks benign, right? Yeah. When you buy a bag of it, it's just how could there be anything bad in here? But, um, but I guess the point is there could be a lot more good in there 
um, if it were milled a certain way. Absolutely. And, and there's also an element, and not to get too technical, but there is a complete element on the agricultural side, which is, uh, you know, there's something called heritage wheat, which means that's the seed uh, that was indigenous to the place it was grown back in the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, it hadn't been hybridized. And so what happened is as as we figured out a better way to mill, or uh, not better, but uh, as we created a, a, a way to mill it to, uh, to, to keep that shelf life, um, we also figured out a way to grow it to match the needs of that industrial food system. So we changed the amount of endosperm, which is the white stuff, right? Um, we also changed the, the structure of the wheat so that it could have bigger actually bigger seeds. So you want a bigger yield, which means uh, you get a shorter plant with mm-hmm. shorter roots, which actually pulls up less nutrients from the soil. And then on top of that, you know, in the United States, we, we don't grow it organically typically. It's, uh, so it's, it's growing on dead soil to begin with. So you actually built a mill to do this? Thank God I didn't try to build a mill, but I found somebody. You found a mill. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I found a baker uh, and craftsman uh, up in the woods of Vermont who is, uh, like, like Matt Williams, our farmer, he is, uh, he is a visionary and he's a pioneer and he believes that, um, and he's a baker. And so he, in his own world, I think he wanted to create a bakery where he was working with farmers in Vermont and milling fresh flour and turning it into beautiful bread and selling it. And he was successful and he started to build custom mills. Um, we found him online and one day I just, I tried to reach out to him and get in touch with him for weeks. And one day we just drove up to his house, um, and, uh, learned about what he was doing, and that day decided that we were going to write a check and commit to building the biggest mill he's ever built, wow. which is a 48-inch stone. So the stones are 1,200 pounds each. Um, they are It's very old school, but it's beautiful, right? Uh, people actually ask us when we're at grocery stores if it runs on water. It does definitely does not run on water. We're crazy, but we're not that crazy. Um, it runs on electricity. Uh, the bottom uh, the bottom stone sits, uh, it's, it's fixed, and then the top stone spins, uh, and it's and it's uh, it's the way that and that's what grinds the it's what grinds the, the wheat berries. berries. Yeah, um, and we kind of skipped over your education about this. So you sold Be Good. You um, you probably had a non compete or something like that. So maybe you, I don't know. You could you yeah. Technically, you we didn't not open a restaurant. Technically, we didn't really sell. I mean, we we uh, it was it was just time to it was time to do something new. Okay. Yeah. And so, but then you had to go through this process of educating yourself. So, I mean, it's your wife saying to the kids quiet dad's reading about wheat or like how how are you doing this how are you learning all this so i um you know i think the i think that i was really really lucky right so i got a year um where i i uh i was earning income from my previous employer and i I couldn't compete with the company and you know that's it i always think that's a gift you know i was 40 i don't know i was like 41 or 42 and um and imagine somebody that age with that experience gets to just, um, really learn. And so, uh, I went, I went pretty deep and, uh, I think, I think people thought it was crazy for sure. But I also think, um, you know, my wife from the very beginning, she just, she just believed that this was, this was the right thing to do and that we were going to figure it out. And so, um, I had tons of support, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell people that, First of all, people don't know what a mill is, and people don't know what wheat is. Right. So you know you have to get creative if uh, if you still want your friends to think that you haven't lost your mind. In terms of how you tell how you're going to tell the yeah. story to consumers, especially when yeah, and then especially when you tell them you're, you're rolling out bagels at uh, five a.m. in the high school down the street. It's it's kind of a it's not a normal it's uh, not a normal story. How did that come about, and and why were you guys there? So uh, I had had this year off, 
um, and I was and I was trying to figure out wheat, and um, and so I had also uh, uh, potentially considered uh, volunteering at a, a local high school to, to help out with some entrepreneurship classes. And so when I thought about the the best class we could do, it's all about, especially for entrepreneurship, it's about applied learning, right? So bringing kids into a business and giving them a real experience. And so I felt like the ideal way to do it was take one mighty mill. And this is at a time when we were actually writing the business plan uh, and building the pro forma and defining the brand and looking at packaging and doing product development. And so I thought the, the best way to do it would be make that the class. And so the, the easy ask for the class was, hey, if we're going to do this, um, can I also work in the cafeteria? Um, and so uh, every morning we would be baking, and then one day a week I would teach the class. But it was really uh, amazing. And, and, and I live across the street, so I would make the starter and the dough the night before, and then we would meet very early. We'd be making breakfast while the kids were eating breakfast, and then we would do, we would actually You'd sample. be making it at the school cafeteria. Yeah, right yeah. in the school. Yeah, it's uh, called Cathedral High School. It's uh, right in the south end, right near yep. where I live. I know Cathedral High, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, and so we, we were actually taste we were doing taste testing with the kids right um and if you think about it it's kind of smart because the a big piece of a grocery store shopper is a is a mom or dad buying for their kids right, right to feed the family and kid, uh, kids don't hold much back right they no no filter <laughs> no, no filter no filter <laughs> and so so we would be baking every morning and then we would teach the class and they really uh in, in fact i even brought the class to whole foods um this is before we way before we had launched and didn't have any products but i let the kids pitch uh, a couple of the team members at the Whole Foods next to the next to the uh, next to the school, and so uh, it was it was a lot of fun. But it was it was it was also uh, very very uh, kind of formative in, in the business we built. Yeah, uh, you know the one other thing I had in the back of my mind I didn't get to ask it is I was curious about the kind of the complexity of the mill uh, itself and whether it's kind of a simple process or complex and mostly like what goes what what can go wrong in a mill I'm sure whatever can go wrong has gone wrong uh, and I'm sure that's been a learning as well but you know typically like what if you get a call and you're not on premise it's because what happened so the, the the if it's done right and and I think the magic of the mill is all about the craftsman who built it right but but to operate it there is there it can go it can go sideways so one thing we learned the hard way is that if the wheat that you mill isn't dried to a certain uh, point it it can actually stop the mill uh, so it, be, it become like dough it can, right? oh, so it can gum up the works it can, it can literally the stop the mill and, and, and you oh, have be, to remember that'd be, to, that'd be pretty serious yeah and you have to remember to to clean the mill means you have to suspend the 1200 pound stone so you have to separate the stones with it with the winch yeah um, and so first of all you know this is a very it feels old medieval it you is. I mean, it's yeah. almost like... Uh, yeah, so it's granite slab. And when you sharpen the stones, so we sharpen the stones once a quarter. So every three months, you do it by hand, right? And so, and, and we're doing it, and this is, you know, we have an open production center and a cafe. So if you're drinking your coffee, there could be a day when you're watching um, you're watching one of our team members yeah. sharpen, sharpen granite stones it, while it's got a 1,200-pound stone suspended. Um, but if, but if you, so if you're milling some wet uh, or some damp uh, wheat, it, it's gonna, you're going to lose a day. Um, uh, so there, there's, there's absolutely some things that can go wrong. I think when it, when it's functioning well and, and, uh, you know, our team has really mastered it. It's as simple as, uh, putting organic wheat berries into the top and then beautiful fresh flour comes out, uh, of the sifter. And so we have these different streams. The first stream is, uh, is almost like a white flour. The middle is something called middlings, which is fine bran and some of the germ. And then the last one is a stream called coarse bran and that's flex. Uh, big flex of uh, of bran, 
that you really can't use if you're trying to make bread or make bagels, which is so ironic that I sent you. Yes, I've noticed that, actually. <laughs> so, uh, John was kind enough to send me a, um, a five-pound bag of what we both thought was flour, but turned out to be bran. Yeah, that was not, that's not what you want to bake with. So, so we can't even use that from bagels. We can use it. The interesting thing is, you know, you can, you can introduce that, the coarse brand, because it has a lot of fiber. So you want to use as much as the wheat berries you can to get maximum nutrition. Um, the challenge is, is that that coarse brand doesn't give you any lift. And so uh, it'll actually pierce the, 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 the CO2 bubbles that you need to uh, create, you know, high rise, beautiful bread. Uh, you can use it in tortillas and you can definitely use it in pretzels. Um, so. Well, I, I promised to come visit. I think I want to visit uh, on one of the days when the 1,200-pound stone's being suspended. Yeah that, sounds, yeah, that sounds kind of dramatic. It's cool. One of the things that's most interesting to me is that one of your first customers was the the Lynn School System, right? That's right. And so from you know, the point of view of what we do at Share Our Strength with the No Kid Hungry campaign, our big focus, of course, is making sure that schools are serving as many eligible kids as possible, the school lunch that they're eligible for, the school breakfast that they're eligible for, and then kind of on a parallel track, making sure that that food is healthier. And as you know, there's a lot of work, particularly in the Boston area with the Shaw Foundation to build kitchens and do uh, scratch cooking in schools. How did how did you and the school system end up connecting? So the, the real reason why is because when, when we thought about what we wanted to build, we wanted to make sure we weren't creating a brand that just served the same customers at the top of the uh, economic spectrum. And I think in fast casual especially, you see... You know, you see there's a formula, right? So if you sell salads or bowls, guess what? You're going to open that restaurant right next to Lululemon and Apple Store, and you're going to put it on Boylston Street right around the corner. Um, and so I, I think as we were competing in fast casual, I started to see the, the idea of really creating change and building something really powerful and positive. I felt like there was this real problem. Uh, we were serving customers based on, I, I felt like, where they lived, and we weren't bringing uh, healthy food to, to people who needed it. And so... You know, so that led to the, the development of our, our mission for One Mighty Mill, which is to bring back the local food systems that help our communities be healthy and thrive. And so the word communities, I could not or we could not make that mean um, just people that can afford to go to premium mm-hmm. grocery stores. So, you know, natural organic grocery stores right now, that's that's a high price point. And so that led to think about where we wanted to put the mill. Um, we really wanted the mill to serve a, serve a neighborhood and a community. Uh, and so we explored a lot of different places uh, in the city of Boston. Uh, and we kind of stumbled uh, across uh, downtown Lynn, which is a neighborhood that's an incredible neighborhood. And it has uh, a rich history in, in, in industry um, and, and in milling and manufacturing. Uh, but, it, but it's kind of been forgotten about a little bit. And so uh, the more we learned about places like that, the more it became exciting about this idea of revitalization, uh, both on the agriculture side. So bringing back wheat to uh, small rural farms uh, in New England, and then also uh, having a mill in a, in a neighborhood where, um, you know, that maybe they only had Dunkin' Donuts and some other restaurants where uh, where those people were eating every day. And so when we also thought about where we were going to put the mill, we also thought about how we were going to how we were going to make it serve a neighborhood. And so we created it. Um, while the focus of the business was always to create this brand for retail and wholesale to sell at grocery stores and sell, you know, online. We wanted to have a, a cafe and market so that uh, we could be serving the community and educating the community and putting that mill front and center behind glass so everybody could see it. So the cafe and market are just they're right at the mill. They're connected to the mill. Yeah. So it's, it looks a lot like a distillery or craft brewery. Yep. Um, you know, we have 30 seats. Uh, the mill is, is visible. It's in the front window. Uh, if you look at it from the street, there's a story that says this is our mill. And it tells you, you know, this used to be the cornerstone of, of a healthy neighborhood. Uh, and the reason why you don't know what it is is because 
hundred years ago, they all they all left, and we wanted to bring one back. And how did you get the school system interested in it? Was that a was that a tough sell? Was that a, That's a yeah? It was it was a tough sell, but I but from the beginning we wanted to make sure that there was a way that we could fulfill mission uh, beyond and in some in some ways it's like you know you 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 know you can't fix everything at once, but but when you start, I felt like if you hardwire some of this the impact that you believe you want to have, uh, then it, it creates. Uh, it creates a pathway for you to stay true to what you what why you started it. And so from the beginning, we had heard about an opportunity. We started actually with Boston Public Schools. We had heard about this uh, this uh, innovation called My Way Cafe, which was going into 20, stu- uh, 20 schools. And they had this moment where they uh, had some autonomy on supply chain and who the local vendors they were going to work with. Uh, we, we were able to um, get a big win, and we were able to serve those 20 schools. Uh, so we made uh, fresh milled our fresh milled whole wheat bagels. And you're still in there. We're, we're not. We did a large, large event uh, this fall where they um, we actually served 35,000 kids on one day in the city of Boston. Huh. A total local lunch, which was amazing. Uh, but but soon after Boston, uh, we were up and running with Boston, and we actually opened our mill on the first day of uh, school with Boston Public Schools. So September 6, 2018, was the first day of school. You know that was. To us internally, we we wanted to hit that date to open because we felt like we could send a message that we reopened the mill around feeding kids. But as soon as we started with Boston, uh, Lynn, which is it's so amazing, they uh, the superintendent and Lynn actually came to the mill and said, "If you're doing this for Boston, you got to do this for us, for our kids." Uh, and we we really quickly thereafter started serving every middle schooler and every high school kid in Lynn. Uh, and does the school system do anything to? Help the kids understand like some of this rich history that we've been talking they, about, or is that they do too uh, much? Yeah, I think it, I think it's really hard. I mean, it's it's hard to get an adult to understand to get yeah. them to stop and and think differently. It's, changing food attitudes is so hard. But uh, the way we approached the, at least the opening of of the cafeterias is that we treated it like we do when we open a grocery store. So if a if a new if a new Whole Foods takes in our products. Uh, we have this kind of activation strategy where we set up a tent, we do demoing, we have uh, we have our brand ambassadors who are so uh, passionate, they work at the mill, they're so passionate about what we're doing and educating. And so we actually set up in the cafeteria um, at uh, uh, in Lynn so that that first day, and, and when, you know, it takes more than a day, but we treated it just like we do a Whole Foods grand opening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the guests we had on this podcast few months ago and he was fascinating you, you may know him but if not i want to make the connections as you and i've been trying to do since we met dan justy uh who used to be the head chef at uh, noma in copenhagen do you know his story at all uh I'm, I'm, and now he's in the new london school system in connecticut and his passion is serving you know scratch cooking good food for kids also in new york city i feel like yeah i would, would love to connect i, I know of his be, work and yeah he's, he's a legend i mean he's a he's great guy amazing. fascinating and you know has dealt with all the obstacles that you know you and i would anticipate going into a school system um but is really and and has listened you know he tells really funny stories about the kids giving him feedback on what they like and what they don't like yeah. and as you were talking about changing food attitudes particularly you know anywhere but including among kids is not an easy thing to do, but he's succeeding at it. I think he's finding it uh, probably more challenging to scale than he originally had. His company is called Brigade. It's a for-profit, uh, but it feels to me like you should be in that supply chain for yeah, them we because need to. he's passionate about this. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna make that connection for awesome. sure. Awesome, I can't we're wait that connection for sure. And then, what do you do about the just kind of like the uh, I guess the economic the challenge of your economics are are, are, are more difficult, right? I mean, your products uh, expensive. How do you overcome some of those issues as a as an entrepreneur? It's it's really hard. Um, so our input cost is is very high. So buying organic wheat from a market that hasn't matured 
means that there's not huge efficiencies there. There's yeah. not infrastructure to support it. So we pay a lot for our wheat. Milling it the way we mill it uh, takes more time and it costs more. And so our prices at retail are, are expensive, which is a challenge. Um, and so when we think about selling it to schools, we, we know we absolutely know we have to we have to subsidize that. We can't we can't bring the same pricing that we do. And but but we are committed to to making this work. Um, the big challenge is that when you enter uh, an opportunity like we are, you need big scale, and so you need to raise capital, and you need to be you need to be willing to actually invest that capital uh, to create change. And so uh, it's difficult to to think to think that way and have a mindset which is like we're just going to keep investing. We're going to keep investing because we believe that this this is the most important thing. This is the change that we can make and that over time, we're going to be able to have the same exact success in New England, outside of New England. When you start, And then when you start to scale, obviously, everything changes. So there, there's one other piece, I think, about uh, how you make it all work. And it's interesting, I think, in the context we're talking about. The, the piece I didn't, uh, I missed is that the, the way the model would work is if we could really thrive at premium grocery stores and then still be serving serving kids yeah right and then you know at our mill uh, the way we set that up is that uh if if you live in our neighborhood or if you live in the city of lynn we extend a 15 percent neighborhood discount um and so what it does is it it actually strategically prices um a bagel and cream cheese to be a couple pennies lower than duncan and i and and i like duncan this isn't about bashing them it's just you know we want to be an alternative to um, food that maybe people shouldn't be eating every day, and we also want people to we want people to feel like this is their this place is for them, right? Like we came into that neighborhood, this is for them. We want them there, and we want them eating fresh milk flour. Uh, an exciting piece is that when you run a market like that, and you can ask, you know, our, our cashiers always ask where you're from. We can we can track it, so we have data. And we uh, at the end of our first year, we had served over 72 percent of all the sales we did at the mill were were from uh, people from our town or from our city. I would think one of the hardest parts of this has to be when I think about walking through the, the aisles of uh, Whole Foods or anywhere else, so many products today have some version of a message on it that's saying it's a better for you product, it's a healthier product. And so I guess my question is just how do you break through that clutter from a marketing point of view? Because uh, you've got the story to tell, right? Usually that's that's the hardest part and you've kind of conquered that now. You've got the mill and you've got a great product. Uh, but from a marketing point of view, how do you break through all the noise around, look over here, look over here, I'm better for you, I'm better for you? It's intimidating. I mean, I think uh, if if you just, there, there are days when um, you walk into a grocery store and you say, what the heck have I signed up for? This is impossible. You know, we launched these pretzel snacks uh, three months ago. And if you, next time you go to a grocery store, look look at the snack aisle. Yeah. Everything looks the same. Everything tells the same story. Everything has fiber and protein, right? And so it is such a huge challenge. The the best thing we can possibly do is is literally number 1 have packaging that is super innovative and bold, right? Cuz you need somebody to stop and pay attention and to know the story. We know for sure if people know the story that that they will support it, right? That we actually can educate and change attitudes, and we know it because one big piece of being successful at grocery is something called demos where you give out free samples. And we know if we can get somebody to stand in front of us, listen to our story and try our product, we can convert them. Now that is not sustainable to think about everybody that comes into a grocery store. So how do you scale it? That's what we're trying to build. Um, You know, the other thing that's super helpful is like meeting people like you, right? Like, you know, we need, 
we need thought leaders. We need evangelists. We need partners that, that believe what we believe and we believe what we're doing is positive and take it to a larger audience. Yeah, the one, I mean, I guess the, the way that I, what I can equate to personally is I think I've written several books now. And so, you know, when you write a book, you're so excited about your book coming out and it's launch day and it's pub date and, and all that type of thing. And you walk into a store and there's 40,000 other books and your, your book is there, you know, by, by itself on the shelf. And if somebody, you know, and so the version of, you know, what I would do would be do a reading at a bookstore at the, you know, Harvard Coop or Politics yeah. and Prose or whatever and so that's like giving out a sample but you got to hope that people like it enough that they're, they're yeah but they're gonna guess go what the rest imagine if your book expired in seven days yeah right even, oh my right goodness. right that's yeah. that's seriously intimidating yeah your your product doesn't expire in seven days though our bagels and tortillas your bagels our yeah. pretzels okay, obviously are yeah. like a snack so okay, they're good but the flour itself is i think you told me 90, 90 days, days once and, yeah yeah okay you know the one thing we haven't talked about is taste uh so when we're biting into one of your bagels with you know, butter or cream cheese on it, uh, compared to a Duncan bagel or I don't know what finagle bagel. How's it going to taste different? Yeah, it's, it's and it's hard to it's hard to say in words. Yeah, I, know. I know it's it's hard to tell but people. I'm just it, curious, it, what's the, 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 what do you think it's different? Uh, so first, first I think it's going to taste way different than you expect. So, and I know this because I we give out samples every day, um, and so we see firsthand. I think people have a connotation of whole wheat as being dry, dense, and flavorless, or bitter almost. Uh, it's so different, right? Fresh mill flour is delicious. It's, I think, the best way to compare it to. And I, and I really think as we think, as we talk about our pretzels, uh, you have to think about them more like uh, wine, coffee, and craft beer, really. Because uh, the harvest changes. And when the harvest changes, it actually expresses uh, different uh, protein. And that protein uh, makes a slightly different shape, a slightly different texture, and absolutely a, a much different flavor. Um, so the good news is, John, um, we've, we've been together a few times and you never come empty handed, which just means like everybody always likes to see you. I would like to see you even, <laughs> even if you did. Uh, but today you bought, bought, uh, brought a bag of uh, 100% whole grain pretzels, uh, freshly milled, non-GMO, no pesticides, no artificials, no GMOs. Um, we're going to try them here together because we were talking a little bit about taste and this is our opportunity, right? Yeah. So let's open up this bag that, um, if we leave some, Woody will get to take them home, our producer, but I've got a handful here and I'm going to, and do you recommend eating these pretzels with anything? Oh, plain, with a dry? nice IPA. With a nice IPA? Okay. Nice IPA. So the, the, the pretzels look different and I, and, you know, it's hard to describe this, uh, to the listener, but our, our pretzels do not look like a normal pretzel. So they they have um, they have a much different texture. So they're a little bit rougher. They don't yep. have that smooth finish. And then most importantly, they're thinner um, and they look funky. So each one actually looks slightly different. Yep. And they're the reason like, that doesn't look like they're out of a pretzel mold or anything. No. And the reason is is that the dough in the flour is living, like we talked about, and so it actually expresses that through uh, really distinctive t- uh, shape. Right, and so the, the the background of this is in, is a little more interesting, which is uh, when we decided we needed wheat to to, to prove that we could do this, um, we ended up actually buying eighty thousand pounds of something called Year One Transitional Organic Wheat from Matt and Sarah Williams. We didn't know what we were doing, right? What we what we didn't know is that we were buying wheat that was what they call lower protein or lower gluten, not good for you can't really make bagels with it. So we decided we were going to launch the business with a couple of products that had very little competition at grocery. One of them, the core one being bagels. And we had bought almost all the wheat with uh, stuff that we couldn't use. And so we, we were sitting on this wheat and then there was a harvest before we opened. So this was 2017 
year one transitional organic wheat berries. The 2018 harvest happened right before we opened. So we could actually start using Matt and Sarah's wheat uh, to make bagels. But we didn't know what to do with this wheat. So we were using it for some of it for tortillas. And then when we had this idea, because we had always seen pretzels as like the next, uh, the next product in our roadmap, we decided we were going to try to use that year one transitional organic. And this is what happened. It came out uh, unique, delicious, packed with nutrition. But even deeper, we think it gives us a way to, to find new farmers and have them yeah. actually start growing wheat again. Because what happens is, if you grow potatoes in, in Maine, uh, there's no incentive to grow wheat, right? Because the first year, even if you grew it as a cover crop, that first year would look like the wheat we bought, which there is no market for that wheat. So we think being able to use it in a pretzel is uh, is, is a big idea, potentially. It's going to take time, but it is exciting to think about. Um, and like when I bite into it, I feel like, and, and you'll have to tell me if I'm just imagining this because I'm not a pretzel connoisseur but i feel like there's like a little more structure to it some pretzels just kind of like dissolve in your mouth and here you get a little bit of crunch and you can like you it feels like there's a little bit of architecture to the pretzel yeah i mean i think it's it's just the wheat berry yeah. it's when you don't mess with it like if you put 100 percent of what you put in the top of the mill into a pretzel this is what it tastes like and what it looks like and the interesting thing is nobody's ever seen a pretzel that looks like this or tastes like this and it's because what we've done to wheat right because we don't take organic wheat and stone mill it the right way and so all our product, all our food now, especially in snacks, it all looks the exact same. It has no distinctiveness or character. And so I feel like when you talk about what we've taken out of it, you could get angry about it. There's just like a hint of me. Oh, yeah. It feels yeah. like, right. You could, you, you know, I feel like you're holding back, but there's something about it that makes you really mad. Yeah. I just, I think the worst thing is that we've become passive, right? Like we're passive consumers because we don't know. And so, like, we should be mad. Like, why Why should we be feeding kids stuff that ultimately makes them sick? That's that's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's fair if we know if we know what we're doing and we do it. What's not fair is if we don't know it, we don't see it, and we still give it to them, yeah. right? Or, or even worse, it's just given to them by some other by some other channel, right? Like by someone they trust. Yeah, like right. schools, right? Yeah, or parents. Absolutely. Right. Well, I feel like one of the things that um, One Mighty Mill and Shark Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign have to conspire on is how to get you into more schools. It, it's just so important. There's such an opportunity. And I feel like um, you know one of the opportunities we have at Shark Strength is we've said to um, school superintendents, to principals, to teachers, to mayors, to governors, take, take a gamble on this strategy we have for increasing participation in school breakfast. You know, we've added about 3 million kids to school breakfast around the, around the country. And I think I just saw uh, this morning uh, an email that said, I think Boston's school breakfast participation is up by 7,000 kids over last year. That's been a big focus for ours. So I feel like we've got permission from our, you know, one of our consumers. Uh, we've got an open door to say, you know, now that you've trusted us on this strategy, the, the parallel path, the next piece of the strategy is quality of food. Uh, and let us introduce you to some products that could make a difference. Now, there's all kind of challenges that have to do with the federal government's reimbursement rate and what can, they can afford and so forth. But uh, we ought to do some mapping together uh, and see how the No Kid Hungry campaign and One Mighty Mill, and maybe it ought to be the, the Mighty No Kid Hungry campaign. <laughs> uh, I'm, right, I'm ready. Um, I'm ready. We need more to mills. To make this happen. And, and we need more kids eating healthy. So yeah, we have, uh, the city of Springfield is, is an amazing place and they're, they're, they're innovative around food service for sure. And so I think they're coming out, they've been out to the mill. Um, and so I think, first of all, if, if you're, if you're a school administrator, or food service director, and you come to Lynn to our mill, I think that's an indication that, um, 
that you want to change. Yep. Right. And yep. so uh, Springfield's been to the mill. They're coming back uh, this month or in January. Uh, and so we're really excited because if we can add another one, um, you have more data and you have more uh, examples you can point to that this actually does work both financially and in the success of the kids and in the meal program itself. How do our listeners learn more? You've got a great website. Just go to one mighty com. Is that it? One mighty com. Go yep. to uh, Instagram, Facebook, one mighty mill. And can you buy the product <clears throat> online? You can buy our pretzels and you can buy our flour. So you can buy. You'll ship. Uh, yep. We'll ship. What's the next product that you have in mind? Oh, so we are working on flavored pretzels. We got back the results yesterday. So exciting. And this has been a really interesting process because we had to, um, we had to rein in our creative and our, uh, our desire to innovate because what we've learned is that in, uh, at least when you're bringing products to masses at grocery, uh, you really need to play it safe at the beginning to make sure that people are, uh, are, are going to try it. Right. Yep. So you don't want to polarize anybody based on, t- on flavors or taste, especially at the start. Um, and we already innovate so much because of the milling and the, the sourcing and everything we do. We've innovated the, the pretzel. Um, and so we, we had some finalists. So we're doing a cheddar pretzel, uh, potentially a honey mustard, a jalapeno cheddar, maple cinnamon, and an everything like our bagel. And so we're going to pick two uh, and we're going to get those to market in June. So that's exciting. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, congratulations, John Alinto from. Um, from Be Good to now One Mighty Mill, uh, really inspiring story and this notion of not only being a successful entrepreneur, but working in a space that's going to make people healthier uh, and actually make our entire ecosystem and our agriculture system healthier. Uh, it's pretty profound. So really exciting to have a chance for the Ad Passion and Stir listeners to learn about it. Awesome. Thanks, Billy. Really appreciate it. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Uh, thanks to our team here at CyberSound, uh, Justin, for running over here at the last minute because we had our times uh, a little bit screwed up. Uh, and Perry, uh, always good to be here. Our producer, Woody, uh, and our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign, Kelly Griffin and Debbie Shore. Uh, for all of us, thanks for listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.